Well, last week we asked the question, what does it look like to put yourself in a position to get right with God? And we answered that question saying that you need to come to a place where you agree that God is good and you are not. The first step in getting right with God is actually seeing that you aren't right with God and then understanding that the reason why isn't because of Him. Like He's just given you the raw end of the deal in life or He's done something wrong. No, the reason why you're not right is because of you. It's because of me. It's because of your sin. It's because of your disobedience to God. It's, it's your own doing. It's my own doing. That's the first step in getting right with God. You, you need to know you have a problem. You need to know the problem lies with you. <laughs> and the next question is, where do you go from there? What do you do? It's one thing to see your sin, to own your sin, to confess your sin. Well, now what? Where do you go from there? Well, our text is going to answer just that question. And I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. If you're using the blue Bibles there in front of you, this is uh, before you get to the Psalms and Proverbs. Actually, it's that way in every Bible. Interesting how that works. Um, I don't have the page number for you, so you're just going to have to want it and find it. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 10. Let me just give you a reminder of the context. Chapter 8, Israel gets a lot of Bible. Israel goes to church. Israel hears the word. For many of them, this is the first real and serious exposure to the truth of God's word in their lives. And the fruit of that word leads to confession in chapter 9. Israel rehearses her history. Israel chronicles her story from creation to current day. And what does she conclude? 9.23 tells us. You can throw your eyes there if you like, but I'm going to read it to you. 9.33, they say, You have been righteous. You is God here. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments or your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. This is confession. This is Israel owning her sin. But here's what's encouraging. True confession is never Never, 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 never. Just an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. True confession turns away from sin and toward God. And that, praise God, is what Israel does in chapter 10. God's people covenant with him. Look at verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On a sealed document are the names of our princes, the leasts, the, the leasts. There you go. The Levites and our priests. Now, Israel is already in covenant with God. 
Israel is in the Mosaic covenant made with them at Sinai, but they haven't kept that covenant, which is the whole conclusion of chapter 9. And so what they're doing now is they're making a promise to obey. Really what they're doing, if this doesn't sound too strange to you, they're covenanting to obey the covenant they're already in. Does that make sense? They're covenanting to obey the covenant they're already in. And they're doing this in a very official way. It's in writing. And they seal it with names. So chapter 10, verses 1 through 27, is a list of 84 names signed on this document. It includes civilian rulers, Nehemiah and Zedekiah, verse 1. 21 priests, verses 2 through 8. 17 Levites, verses 9 through 13, followed by 44 chiefs of the people. That's lay folk in 14 through 27. So these are the people who signed this covenant. But 28 and 29 make it very clear that the signers of the covenant aren't the only participants in the covenant. So I want you to read 28 and 29 with me. Nehemiah 10, 28 and 29. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and statutes. Significant couple of verses here. Number one, we see the expansiveness of this covenant. So the participation of the covenant, the expansiveness of the participation in this covenant. This was not just rulers and leaders, this was the whole community, the rest of the people, verse 1. The gatekeepers, the singers, the the temple servants, you have wives, you have sons, you have daughters, you have all who have knowledge and understanding, verse 28. How expansive is that? All who have knowledge and understanding. This is all Israel entering into this covenant. Number two, we see the grace of God. Halfway through verse 28, there's this small little phrase that packs a big little punch Included in this covenant are all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God. Do you know who that is? It's non-Israelites. It's people from unbelieving nations that have left their unbelieving ways and they have devoted themselves to the God of Israel and they've got a place at the table. This is the grace of God. It's this, it's the grace of God. God has never just been about the people of Israel. He has been about saving all who come to him through repentance and faith. And then number three, we see the seriousness of this covenant. In verse 29, we're told that they're entering into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. A curse and an oath. Well, an oath is simply a promise. It's a promise to to keep covenant, to obey God. But if they don't, they recognize that what awaits them is the curse. 
The curse of the law, the penalty of sin. What's that? Separation from God. Why are they concerned about that? Because that's what their ancestors experienced in the exile. The judgment of God. And this is what they don't want to have happen. This is why they're entering into covenant. Oh God, we are turning from our sin and we will walk with you. And so what does that look like? It looks like obeying his law. And that's where the text goes next. So here are specific covenant obligations that Israel enters into. There are actually three of them. Number one, reject mixed marriages. Number two, observe the Sabbath. And then number three, support the temple ministry. I just want to walk through these briefly, kind of help you understand where they fit in this context, and then I want to help you see how this makes a difference for us. So number one, reject mixed marriages, verse 30, says this. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now to Westerners living in the modern world, this just seems like racism of some kind. Like people of one tribe sticking up their nose at people of another. But that's not what this is at all. This has nothing to do with racial purity. This has everything to do with spiritual purity. The people of the lands worship false gods. The people of the lands do not trust in the one true God and they do not obey his law. Ask yourself a question. Why would you marry someone who isn't like-minded with you on the most central and important issue in all of life? God does not want Israel to do this. He commanded them not to do this in the Mosaic Covenant. She perpetually disregarded it. And as a result, she was led off into idolatry time and time again. So she pledges herself to covenant faithfulness here. She will only marry within the faith. Just by the way, as we think about ourselves on this side of the cross of Jesus... Brothers and sisters, the same principle applies. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.39 that a widow is free to remarry only in the Lord, meaning that a Christian widow is free to marry only a believer. So believers should marry believers. Believers should not marry non-believers. Now, just a quick side note. If you're here this morning as a Christian and you're married to a non-Christian already, God would have you simply be faithful to your spouse. Love your spouse. Share the gospel with your spouse. Do not leave your spouse because he or she is not a Christian. But if you are dating or single and thinking about dating and you're a Christian, you are only free to pursue another Christian in this most sacred of relationships. Okay. Moving on. Next commitment to observe the Sabbath, verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now there are several parts of this commitment when it just says a commitment to the Sabbath. There's, there's kind of several pieces. There's the weekly Sabbath. Uh, there's the sabbatical year. And there's this, there's this obligation to cancel debts. So let's just think about these things. So there's the Sabbath. Now notice, they, they don't just reiterate the need to observe the Sabbath. What, what is the Sabbath? Resting on the seventh day, okay? Work six days, rest one. That's the Sabbath. 
But, but they don't just say, we're going to observe the Sabbath. They say, if peoples of the land bring in goods or grain on the Sabbath, then we won't buy them. Why do they, why do they say it like that? Well, apparently, the reason they needed to word the commitment in this way was because some Israelites claimed that they weren't breaking the law if it was unbelieving nations who were the ones buying and selling grain. I mean, after all, they're the ones working, right? Not us Israelites. So what is that? It's just chicanery. It's just a loophole to get around the spirit of the law. And so what they say is we're, is we're, we're going to close that loophole. We're, we're going to obey not just the letter of the law, we're going to obey the spirit of the law. Which is why they recommit themselves to the sabbatical year. God commanded themselves to, they, God commanded them to rest themselves one day in seven, and he commanded them to rest the land one year in seven. And they say, you know what, we're going to do that. Now I just want you to put yourself in their shoes for just a minute. In an agrarian society where most of your money is made from the land, that takes faith. Amen? That takes faith. That takes faith not to plant for a whole year, trusting that the crop the Lord gave you the previous year is going to last you this year, the next year, and then until you reap the harvest of the crop the year after that. That's not easy. But they say, we're going to do it. And they're also going to cancel debts. In the sabbatical year, there is this canceling of debts that's to take place. And what that looks like is that if any Israelite had, had borrow money from Aaron's, you know, store. No, I'm just kidding. If any Israelite had borrowed money from his brother and he couldn't repay, it was to be re- forgiven. And if you remember from a few chapters back, this was something they got in hot water for just within the past few months. They, they hadn't been obeying this. And so they say, all right. We're going to obey. And then finally, they commit themselves to support the temple ministry. I want you to read 32 through 39 with me. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and all the work of the house of God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed, year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from the ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor, And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now, there's a lot of detail there. 
There's a lot of detail that's kind of pulled from various strands of the Torah. And it all relates to the temple and everything needed to support the work of the temple. The the, the bottom line here is what the people are doing is they say, we are going to do what needs to be done in order to make sure the temple ministry, which is the cornerstone of the Levitical system of worship in the Old Testament, we are going to do what's necessary for that to take place. That's, that's the whole sense here, and you know it, because what do they say in the last verse? We will not neglect the house of our God. They're pledging to support the temple ministry. Now, let me just take a step back for a second. That may feel like a strange section to you. Partly, probably because we're so far removed from these things on this side of the cross. But also, I, I don't know, it just... It, it, it does seem a little weird that these three specific covenant obligations are what they bring up when they decide to make a covenant to keep the covenant, right? I mean, why, why these things? Intermarriage, Sabbath keeping, temple ministry. Why focus on these things instead of just saying, hey, we're serious about keeping the whole law. Why focus on these It's actually a very important question. So tune in because I want you to see a couple of things here. One, they bring these up because these are the specific commands of the law law that they have been breaking. (laughs) Intermarriage, they've been a train wreck. Just look at their history. Sabbath breaking, there's no history of the sabbatical year being observed since they took the land. Absolute travesty. And temple ministry, even once they were back in the land, they had a tendency to neglect it. And that's why the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, who prophesied during this time, said, don't you dare sit back at ease in your own house while the house of God lies in ruin. Get up and build. So what's going on here is actually something very, very beautiful and precious. They commit to obey God in the specific ways They haven't been obeying him. Oh God, we have not obeyed you in this, but we will now. We are turning from our sin in this specific thing and we will obey you in regards to this. Second thing I'd say is that obedience here brings forth obedience in other aspects of the law. So just think about it. To not intermarry. To have both parents as followers of the one true God. That lays the foundation to obey Deuteronomy 6 and train your children in the ways of the Lord, which brings forth greater obedience. To keep the Sabbath, to trust God to rest, that's going to lead to trusting God in other realms. And to not neglect the house of God for the festivals and sacrifices and offerings all to take place for the people to regularly worship God and be reminded of His grace and be called to concentrate themselves to them. Don't you think that obedience is going to lead to obedience to the rest of the law? Of course it is. That's the point. The people are committing to obey in the specific realms they haven't been obeying. But it's more than that. 
It's setting them up to obey the whole law. And then finally, and hear me here, don't let this talk of obedience make you think this is about Israel earning salvation or earning the favor of God. This is not obedience to earn grace. This is obedience because of grace. This is not obedience to earn grace. This is obedience because of grace. Israel's commitment to obey God is her response to God's grace and forgiveness that he poured out upon her while she was yet in her sin. Do not forget the fact that God saved her from Egypt before he gave her his law. Amen? And this is probably a good time to just pause and connect dots to us. Some of you are sitting here and you're like, Sabbath, ah, temple worship, ah, intermarriage, not a problem, ah. Okay, brothers and sisters, this text gives us a picture of what becoming a Christian looks like. Yes, this is Old Testament language. Yes, the obedience they commit to is Old Testament obedience. But this is a picture of becoming a Christian nonetheless. Jesus himself said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Bound up in becoming a Christian is putting away sin and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this text says. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. That's putting away sin. And follow me. That's obedience. To become a Christian. To get right with God. We have got to turn from our sin. And we have got to turn to obedience to Jesus Christ. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, we're hesitant to focus on obedience because we want to protect against works-based salvation. But friends, we can't ignore the reality that Jesus himself requires obedience. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to observe, to keep, what? All that I have commanded you. That's obedience, plain and simple. So when we come to, come to Christ, it turns out we do exactly what they did here. Convicted of their sin, they covenant to obey God in the specific areas where they'd been sinning. Oh God, we've not obeyed your law in relation to mixed marriages, in relation to the Sabbath, in relation to temple ministry. Forgive us, Lord, we repent, and now we're going to follow you. Now we're going to obey you. Isn't that what you said? When you came to Christ. Oh Lord, I have not obeyed your law in relation to pride, in relation to lust, in relation to selfishness or anger or backbiting or greed or love of the world or alcohol. Oh God, I need the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse me from my sin. Oh God, I trust the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sin. And oh God, I will turn from my sin. I will obey you. That's true faith. Turning from sin and turning toward obedience to Jesus Christ. 
And if there is any fear of a twinge of works-based salvation in your heart, let me just help you put that aside. Because just like it was for Israel, so it is for us. We don't obey to earn God's grace. We obey because of God's grace. God doesn't tell us to clean ourselves up before he accepts us. God accepts us despite our sin. Amen. God expects, accepts us in our sin. Amen. That's his grace. And because of his grace, we flee our sin and we pursue obedience. Obedience specific to our specific sin. And obedience in pursuit of all that he's commanded. Amen. So back to our text. So what do we see? Well, we've seen God's people covenant with him. Now let's see them repopulate the city. And just to step back for just a second, this is actually a climactic moment in Nehemiah. It's not going to feel that way because it's a list of names. You're like, fantastic, I love genealogies. But I just want you to think about what this represents. The city of God is being filled. The people of God have been restored and now they're going to fill the city. I want you to read uh, 11, 1 and 2 with me. Now the leaders of the people of Israel lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in their other towns and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now, I've got to be honest with you, Jerusalem itself, at least in this day, wasn't exactly a garden spot that most people wanted to live in. It was a risky place to live. It was the target of, of enemy attack. And also, living there meant sacrifice. Living there meant you had less land. And if you had less land, you have less opportunity for personal income. So there was a sacrifice, both in terms of personal safety and a sacrifice in terms of personal wealth and ease, there was sacrifice associated with living in Jerusalem as opposed to living in the rural communities surrounding it, which is why the people cast lots. And then one in ten end up living in Jerusalem and nine in ten end up living in surrounding towns. And, and the people blessed those who were willing to make that sacrifice of living there. And, and so who's there? Well, three is an introduction. Four through six are the sons of Judah, seven through nine the sons of Benjamin, ten through fourteen the priests, fifteen through eighteen the Levites, miscellaneous others in nineteen through twenty-four, and then villages immediately outside Jerusalem in twenty-five and twenty-six. Moving on to chapter 12, this is a list of, of priests and Levites. So, so verses 1 through 9 are priests who came up with Zerubbabel and Joshua or Yeshua in the original return back in Ezra. 10 through 11 gives us the genealogy of high priests. 12 through 21 tells us the priests in the days of Joachim. 22 through 26 are the heads of Levitical families. This is exciting stuff, right? Listen, I understand why when we approach chapters like this, most of us would prefer to read Ephesians chapters 1 through 2 than Nehemiah 11 through 12. But follow me for just a second. 
Just as impressive buildings have unimpressive foundations, so too Nehemiah 11 and 12 serve a redemptive purpose that will only later develop into something far more glorious. Can you think about what that might be? Think about this. God intends to populate a city, doesn't he? Think about it. God intends to populate a city, not not Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. He intends to fill it, brothers and sisters, with names. Specific people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And although that city will one day be glorious and fantastic, it is not all that much to look at now. Do you know where the city is to be found now? It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that place that's pretty unimpressive by the world's standards. It's that place that's the object of the enemies of Christ's scorn. It's the place where those who choose to dwell there make a sacrifice in order to be a part of it. So just connect the dots to you. Getting right with God through faith and repentance leads to becoming a part of Christ's church. His body here on earth where you make a real practical sacrifice to be a part. At a minimum, you say, I'm here on Sundays. I talked to non-believers, one at the guard last week, and they were just like, Sunday, it's the weekend. I want to hang. I'm like, I get it, but I'm a Christian, so I'm here. Do you see what I'm saying? At a minimum, there's a sacrifice of saying, I'm not doing something else on Sunday. I'm here. That's not the only sacrifice that's made. We give our lives in service to Christ's church to see her flourish, to see her built up, to see other souls brought in because we want the church of Christ to flourish here and otherwise, right? And this is all going somewhere. And for that, I want you to look at chapter 12, beginning at verse 27, as God's people rejoice. Verse 12, chapter 12, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness. So what are they doing? They're making preparations to dedicate the newly rebuilt and repopulated city. It's time to dedicate her. So, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the distinct from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from its village of the Netophathites. Also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Osmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and I appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One to the south wall, one went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, 
Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and certain of the priests, sons of the trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, and his relatives. Shemaiah, Azariah, Milalai, Gilalai, Mai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate they went up straight before them by the stairs of the gate of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north and I followed them with half of the people. On the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshua and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half the officials with me. And the priests Eliakim, Messiah, Maniamin, Micaiah, Eloani, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets. And Messiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehonanon, Malchijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And then look at this last line. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Do you know what this points us to ultimately? I think you do. It points us to that great wedding feast of the Lamb. That day when the bride is ready and new Jerusalem descends and all of God's people sing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might. Friends, I guarantee you the joy on this day was astronomical. (laughs) And I guarantee you the joy in a coming day when we see his face will be even more astronomical. And friends, the rejoicing in that day could be heard from far away. And I guarantee you the rejoicing in a coming day is going to be so momentous that the very heavens and the earth are going to shake and quake with the reverberations of the sound of our song as we worship the Lamb and our God. That is where this is headed. That is where being right with God ends so how, how are we made right with God? Through confession, through faith in Jesus Christ, which includes obedience to his command, which looks like living in the context of the local church, which leads to eternal joy. And so the last few things I just want to leave you with are this. Non-Christian, the reason why some of you aren't Christians is really just because you don't want to obey Jesus Christ. It's not that you don't think the offer is available. It's that you don't want it. Because you understand that coming to Him means obeying Him. 
You understand that coming to Him means turning from your specific sin, giving that to Him and saying, I will follow and obey. And you don't want to do that. But friend, let me just remind you, there is nothing better and more glorious than that in the end. You want to be in this city. You want to be worshiping the Lamb. And so my invitation to you is to come. Don't shy away from obeying Jesus Christ. Don't think it's going to lead to discouragement. It's going to lead to joy. Now and forevermore. So I want to encourage you. Put your faith in Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And don't be afraid to say, I will die to myself. I will take up my cross. And I will follow him. And brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you to take seriously the call to obey Jesus Christ. Sometimes, the Christian life, we got to have two things in tension, right? The gospel indicative, what God has done, and the gospel imperative, what we are to do in response. And if we don't hold up both, then then we just, we, we get in a bad way. We need to remind ourselves that we don't want to shy away from obeying Jesus Christ and all that he has called us to do. And so if you are lackluster in your obedience to Jesus, you need to repent of that. Is there specific sin that you know of that's in your life right now? You need to do business with that and turn. Because there is no heaven without following him in obedience. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you for this picture. This picture of conversion, really, in the Christian life and then where it all leads, joy. As we will all Rejoice in your presence. Father, we ask that you use your word to continue to transform us and mold us into your image, and we are thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. And so now-